Welcome to the 1-0 podcast hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The 1-0 podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. Listen to both our show and the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast hosted by Kevin Dunn and Paul Wadlington. Please subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review to let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. If you'd like to contact us directly, send us emails at everyone gets a trophy. That's the number one. Everyone gets a trophy at gmail.com. And today we're going to talk about the most recent NFL draft, the 2020 Zoom NFL draft, uh, and the, the resulting effects on the Texas Longhorns, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Houston Texans before talking about Greg Brown, Vandegrift forward, who chose to play at Texas instead of in the, in the G League or at several other colleges. And of course, the 1-0 podcast would not be possible if it were not for the following. Got to give some love to audio-visual consultations, avconsultations.com, the website, 512-255-8678, the phone number to call when you want the home TV setup of your dreams. AV Consultations can make it happen. If you're realizing during this quarantine that, oh, I don't really have the TV set up the way that I want it, call AV Consultations. They are essential. They can help you out right now, whether it's indoors or outdoors, with a TV surround sound setup that you want in the comfort of your own home. And this podcast is also brought to you by Altstadt Brewery, Altstadt Beer. It is German beer brewed in Central Texas, available at all of your favorite grocery stores, liquor stores, and convenience stores and once again brewed in local texas so every time you buy a six-pack of altstat you are supporting a local business it is altstat beer no impurities no regrets so the nfl draft for the most part went off without a hitch unless you are bill o'brien and don't think you uh, need a you know generational wide receiver uh, at all so but everything else was great. It was a great little drop in the bucket for sports that have been missing for so long. You know, not only for us to discuss around the virtual water cooler, but just to take our mind off of some other, you know, just the whole everything going on in the world right now. And as a result, uh, three Texas Longhorns were selected in the most recent NFL draft. That makes the the new streak that ended in 2014 at one, two, three, four, five, six straight drafts, and at least where at least one Longhorn has been selected. Uh, three heard their name this week, and it was a little surprising to the name we heard first. Uh, Brandon Jones went to the Dolphins with the sixth pick in the third round, uh, and then that was followed pretty quickly thereafter, 22 picks later, by. Devin Duvernay going to the Ravens. And then finally, the last Longhorn draft pick uh, in the 2020 draft was Colin Johnson, uh, fifth-round pick, uh, 165 overall by the Jaguars. So were you as surprised as I was to hear Brandon Jones get his name called as early as he did, or if not that earlier than Devin Duvernay? I kind of had figured in what I had written on Inside Texas that he'd be kind of in that area round three round four I believe the athletic had something very similar uh from Dane Brugler but I did not see him getting picked a that early and be ahead of Devin Duvernay you know before the draft if you would have asked me if I would have thought Brandon Jones would go before Devin Duvernay I would have said no but I wouldn't have been surprised if it were to happen I figured both of those guys had the chance to go in round three so if it was a couple of picks difference it wouldn't have blown me away But after the first day, the first round of the NFL draft, where no safeties went off the board, not a single safety 
went in the first round, I figured, oh man, there's no chance. Brandon Jones is probably going to fall to day three because it doesn't seem like teams are valuing safeties that much this year. They're not grading safeties that highly this year. And if nobody's going to go in the first round, that's going to create sort of a chain reaction that's going to lead to a little bit of a slip for Brandon Jones. But uh, not super thrilled when it's all said and done, and I love the fit, man. I really do. I love the fit with the Miami Dolphins. Obviously not a great football team, which eh, you want your guy to go to a spot where he can compete for a Super Bowl. But Brandon Jones will have the opportunity to to compete for some early playing time. I don't think there's a whole lot of talent in that Miami Dolphins defense, especially at the safety position. Their starting free safety right now is Adrian Colbert, a guy who's from the state of Texas, Played his college ball at Miami, but was a seventh-round pick a couple of years ago. Their other safety, their starting strong safety, is Eric Rowe. Uh, Another Texas kid actually played his college ball at Utah. Neither of those guys are that great, are that special. So I think there's going to be some opportunity for Brandon Jones to get some playing time relatively early. Brian Flores is a defensive coach coming over from the New England Patriots, so I think that's a good guy to learn from. And hell, I mean, Brandon Jones getting to play his college football in Austin and then going to play pro ball in Miami you could do a whole hell of a lot worse location wise than that so you know to answer your original question a little bit surprised that Brandon Jones went before Devin Duvernay but I like the fit I think he's going to be a good player at the next level and I think Brian Flores likes his versatility the fact that he can play safety but also can play some nickel corner as well we saw that at times last year here in Austin Hell, in the LSU game, he might have been the best cover guy Texas had in their secondary against the Tigers <laughs> in that game. So I like the fit. I like what Brandon Jones can bring to the table, and I think Brian Flores likes his versatility. I think when you started running through the depth chart, you you talked about what makes this the best opportunity for Brandon Jones. Uh, remember, I think it was you know last year, maybe even the year before, uh, the Dolphins traded Minka Fitzpatrick out of Alabama, I believe, to the Steelers. So they've had this need at safety at least since that pick. And of course they were going to address that in several other needs because they had a score of uh, top picks in this draft. Uh, they of course used the first one on two attack of which I think people were overthinking him. And I think he's going to be a star. Uh, but like you mentioned, this is a, this is a safety room that has a lot of opportunity for somebody like Jones. And it's an opportunity he should be able to do well with, because just exactly like you mentioned, he was able to do so, so much, so many different roles for this Texas defense, often at the detriment of his own stats. I mean, when you're playing basically as a, a force player at the edge of the line of scrimmage, because for some reason defensive ends shouldn't be doing that, it kind of takes away from what you're able to maybe accumulate tackle-wise. Uh, P.J. Locke was really good at that at college, and Brandon Jones too. But even still, he had a great year and ended up being the first Longhorn selected off the board and is continuing the DBU mantle. Uh, that's I think that's just as important uh, because you know if this week doesn't prove it, I don't know what will. The NFL draft is a huge recruiting event, and to have you know at least a couple guys go from your team is recruiting fodder that you need on the trail, especially right now. But we will uh, we'll keep going. We will talk about the other third round pick and Devin Duvernay. And I think this is a as good of a situation as you can go to if you're a first-year player. We all know how the, the leadership abilities of Devin Duvernay, named a captain in the middle of the year, you know, not super outspoken, but definitely has the, uh, the, the respect of all his teammates. 
And then, you know, also a really damn good football player. Yeah. He, you know, was third in the country in catches and had 1,400 yards this year. And so he's about to go to a situation where uh, in in Baltimore where <laughs> he may not win the foot race when everybody's on the field. He may not even be the third best player in his offense. And that's a scary thought for the rest of the AFC. Uh, but that that is a – I believe that's a really good fit for him. He'll be able, I, I see John Harbaugh being able to get him the ball in creative ways like they do with literally everybody on that roster. Uh, and he may be a perfect fit inside and allow Hollywood Brown to also blaze it on the outside there. So uh, first wide receiver picked in the draft for Texas since Marquise Goodwin seems so long ago. What do you think about Devin's chances in Baltimore playing in the bank with Lamar Jackson. Boy, the Ravens had a pretty damn good draft, didn't they? And Devin DuVernay is a big part of that. They needed some extra weapons at wide receiver. They didn't have a whole lot of weaknesses last year. They had the best record in the NFL, the one seed in the AFC. But one of their bigger weaknesses was weapons on the outside for Lamar Jackson. You mentioned Hollywood Brown. They already have him. They've got Willie Sneed as well, who's decent. But to get Devin DuVernay to line up in the slot, that is going to be huge. And yeah, you want to talk about an awesome fit, an awesome situation to get to go to a contending team right away to play with the reigning MVP. And you ran down the list of weapons right there. I mean, with Mark Ingram, with J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards in the backfield. Also, those receivers I brought up, Mark Andrews at tight end. Lamar Jackson is a weapon in itself. Devin DuVernay is going to have some opportunities next year to get the football because defensive coordinators are going to be so focused on stopping some of those other dudes that might create some easy mismatches for Devin DuVernay. He's got great speed, great hands. We know that from his time at Austin. Just a, a really, really good fit. Couldn't ask for a much better situation. And outside of Kansas City, I'm not sure there's any place you'd rather go as a wide receiver right now or at least a skill position player to be a part of what Baltimore has cooking. Uh, that's special. Devin DuVernay had to be pumped when that draft pick was made, and I'm pretty damn sure all of Longhorn Nation was pumped as well because we want that guy to be successful, and it seems like he's in a great position to be successful pretty much from day one on. Yeah, he'll be joining a couple other Longhorns there with Earl Thomas and, and Justin Tucker, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the Ravens draft. I mean, if you just look through who they picked, these are a lot of really good college players. These aren't, honestly, these aren't guys like Jordan Love who have skills and traits but play at a small school and do well in that competition, but you wonder why he's at a small school. These are bona fide stars. Patrick Queen, J.K. Dobbins, Devin DuVernay, even James Prochet down in the sixth round. Ravens had a hell of a draft. I think you hit that exactly correct. And for me, the big thing is, yes, not only the fit and him and DuVernay uh, being able to reap the benefits of having so many offensive weapons there on the field, but I think it goes back to what I mentioned, recruiting. And this is, like I mentioned again, Texas' first wide receiver drafted since Marquise Goodwin. Mm. Uh, if you want to you know, dispel narratives – and, you know, end negative recruiting pitches as associated with your skill positions, the NFL draft is the easiest way to do it. And Texas has not been able to do that at wide receiver, even with guys like John Harris having a thousand yard year, little Jordan Humphrey, although that had a lot to do with his own decision-making, uh, you know, just any of the other guys who have played wide receiver at Texas had solid years and then really, you know, didn't hear their name in the draft. This is huge to dispelling that. Uh, and I think, obviously, the benefits for Devin are, are unbelievable. But, you know, that wasn't – there was one more uh, Longhorn, one more Longhorn receiver 
picked in the NFL draft. And I think he went a little earlier than I expected uh, with, with Colin Johnson going in the fifth round uh, to the, the Jaguars. It'll be interesting for me, uh, at least as a Texans watcher, I think at this point, uh, what it'll be like seeing him in that offense twice a season in the AFC South. Uh, but what do you, I, I think that's a little earlier than I anticipated him going. I, I had really thought he was going to be picked, but I was afraid that he might find himself falling in around six or seven. What do you think about where he was selected and, and what do you think about you know where he he ends up in Jacksonville? Well, hold on here, hold on here before I give my take on that. What is this Texans watcher? stuff you just mentioned you usually say fan after texans you're switching to watcher are you not uh you're not supporting them anymore uh we're in a we're in a difficult stretch right now uh <laughs> a, a a difficult stretch with bill o'brien but it's uh, complicated on and... facebook is that what y'all's relationship is right now I think that's a very good way of putting it. Oh, man, I feel like you're not alone there with Texans fans with some of the decisions that Bill O'Brien is making. We'll get to their draft in a second, but uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, Colin Johnson, you know, on the surface, on paper, Jacksonville is not a good fit because the Jaguars are consistently bad, and they've got a lame (laughs) duck head coach. I mean, a lot of people, including myself, were shocked that Doug Marone was brought back for 2020. I thought he was going to get canned. The Jags organization was in some turmoil last year as well with what Tom Coughlin was doing, like going against medical doctors, trying to get players back on the field, even though they were injured, the whole mess that unfolded from that story. And the Jags are always a mess, and right now it seems like there is no exception to that. But on the other hand, the Jags don't have a lot of talent at wide receiver. And we know that because they spent their second-round pick on LaVisca Chenault, the DeSoto kid who played his college ball at Colorado. They drafted two wide receivers this year. They are looking for weapons to gar- for Gardner Minshew because they don't have a whole lot on their team already. Now, they spent a second-rounder on DJ Chark a couple years ago, and he had a really good mm-hmm. year last year. Like, him and Gardner Minshew hit it off, 1,000-yard receiving year for DJ Chark. But, you know, D.D. Westbrook's just been okay out of Oklahoma. Chris Conley... Uh, the former Kansas City Chief is just all right. So, like, yeah, the Jags are bad, and I don't think Gardner Minshew's that great of a quarterback, and it's only in his second year, and the head coach is this, and they've got this and that problem and there and that. But sometimes it's good being drafted to a bad team because you get some opportunities to play early on. Now, it's going to be tough for Colin Johnson without summer workouts and without fall camp, and who knows what the hell this season is going to look like. It might be tough for him to crack the starting lineup early on, but because the Jags don't have a ton of talent and or experience in the wide receiver room, I think that means there's an opportunity for Colin Johnson to play relatively early on, and we know how good he can be. You know, my biggest question for CJ is separation, right? He he didn't run at the combine, trying to recover from injury, so we don't know exactly how fast he is. And I know the 40 time doesn't tell at all, right? That doesn't necessarily mean you could separate for from cornerbacks at the next level. But that was my biggest issue with Colin Johnson, like, Why he was so good is because he was able to make contested catches. Those 50-50 balls, he was able to come down with more often than not. They were more like 70-30 instead of 50-50 for Colin Johnson. He makes some acrobatic plays. Uh, His catch radius is ridiculous. He does some things that are really, really good, and I think he fits perfectly with his size and strength. He can be a legit possession receiver at the next level, but that speed. 
Can he separate from cornerbacks? Can he get open? Is his route running good enough? Is his foot speed and quickness good enough to get open? That's going to dictate whether or not Colin Johnson has a successful NFL career. I would have guessed he would go in the fifth round, so I'm not as surprised as you are with where he was selected. Uh, you know, we, we weren't quite sure what to expect with the lack of combine and the fact that he only spent half of his senior year on the sideline dealing with injuries. But if I had to guess, I would have said fifth round. And once again, on on the surface, Jacksonville, not ideal. It's not the ideal franchise or organization you want to go to. But I think there could be some good opportunity early on for Colin Johnson because of the lack of wide receivers they have. See, I differ a little bit uh, with what Colin's biggest challenges are going to be at the next level. I think that once he gets to Jacksonville, once he's in the facility, once he's, you know, back to normal, I think that the separation issues and uh, being able to make do more than just make those contested catches and what I've kind of labeled just do more than being 6'6", I think that will come once he gets to the NFL, gets into that with you know NFL-level coaching, attention to detail, all that different stuff. I think that's going to take care of itself. But I'm going to use a line that you use pretty often. It's your best ability is availability. And although Colin Johnson was on pace for – being right around a thousand yards again in college uh, or his senior season, he didn't get there. He was, I think about halfway there or something like that because he was not able to stay healthy the whole time. And he had these issues even in his junior year where he was, I believe 15 yards short of being a thousand yard receiver as well. So I think that he's going to be able to translate his game fine. Uh, one of the things he will have to work on is, when you're six six, that's more area for a uh, a corner to grab onto. Mm-hmm. That's any wide receiver, and that's going to be probably what he has to work on within his game. Uh, but he's got to be able to. I think that's what's going to determine what type of pro Colin Johnson is at the next level. Just how often he's able to stay on the field and, and be able to play, uh, as opposed to you know being in street clothes on the sideline. Yeah. Uh, we also know that he, both he and DuVernay and probably even Brandon Jones at this point uh, with what they did were asked to do at Texas, they're probably going to be special teams guys or have some role on special teams at the next level. That's how a lot of these guys get in there. Uh, and Tom Herman, in, in under, uh, under his watch in these past couple of years, they've put starters or starter-level guys like Colin Johnson and, and Brandon Jones and even DuVernay on special teams. So I think those guys will they'll have opportunities to see the field. Who do you think gets more opportunities? I know that's hard to quantify uh, considering they play different positions, but between those three guys, who do you kind of see making the quickest impact in their rookie season whenever it happens? Mm, I really think you could argue Devin DuVernay or Brandon Jones to answer that question. I think both of those guys are going to have the opportunity to, if not start, at least be in the rotation at their positions right away. It's hard to not pick Devin DuVernay just because of that offense and all the weapons that they have, and it seems like you know you can kind of plug and play him as the slot receiver for Baltimore. But I'm going to go with Brandon Jones. I'm going to go with Brandon Jones just because the Dolphins have a need at safety. I don't think Adrian Colbert is that great, and I think Brandon Jones is going to have the opportunity to compete for some playing time right away. And we talked about his versatility too, and you just brought up the special teams, which is something that he brings to the table as well. So I don't think there's a wrong answer between Jones and Duvernay. I think both of those guys are going to have their opportunities. But uh, I won't cop out. I'll go with Brandon Jones just to give you one answer. What about you? I got to agree. I think uh, not only you have the path to playing time that is available in Miami, 
Uh, but Devin Duvernay's path to playing time is going to be a little different. Yes, they did need uh, a little bit of wide receiver help, and this will help Hollywood Brown. But, you know, the, the Ravens run out of so many different offensive sets. Unlike, uh, unlike Texas, they don't normally just have tight end and running back on the field. They have, you know, r- these formations with Mark Andrews and Mark Ingram and Robert Griffin III. Lamar Jackson, Hollywood Brown. There is so much going on in that Ravens offense because of the variety that times that they need a slot wide receiver, there may just be fewer opportunities for Devin. I think he's Mm -hmm. definitely good enough to be that full-time wide receiver if they wanted that immediately, but their strategy, it it may not just lend him as many opportunities as Brandon Jones would have with a team that needs a safety, like we mentioned, to replace Minka Fitzpatrick. So that uh, that covers the Longhorn draftees. They had two undrafted free agents as well, two guys who uh, one was extremely helped by the combine, I believe, and, and Malcolm Roach, and one was hurt by not only not, not being able to participate in the combine, but not being able to participate in Texas's pro day. And now is Zach Shackelford. But they're undrafted free agents, I think, Uh, We can go over Shaq really quickly. Um, I'm not so sure of the uh, offensive line situation at Tampa Bay, but I know the quarterback situation right now, Hmm. uh, and I know the tight end situation right now, and so that's got to be a pretty appealing place to, you know, not only have to learn how to be a pro uh, and, and that type of thing, but you're learning from probably one of the best, if not the best football player of all time. So, what do you think about Shaq's chances at the next level? Is this going to be a guy that, you know, ends up playing in whatever split-off league we have next year? Or is this going to be a guy who kind of finds <laughs> some space in a very specified role on an NFL roster? Uh, it's a little bit of a long shot for me. Um, you know, it's an awesome situation getting to go to Tampa Bay and at least to have the opportunity to block for the greatest quarterback of all time and Tom Brady. And right now the Bucks only have two centers on their roster, so maybe that means Shaq has the opportunity to compete. But you know, I think it's going to be tough for all of these undrafted free agents this year just with the lack of full offseason that we're going to have. I mean, whether you think the NFL is going to start on time or not or be played without fans or not, I can't imagine we're going to start training camp on time, uh, which is just going to make it way more difficult for undrafted free agents to kind of prove their worth and earn their stripes and do what they have to do to get a spot on the now 55-man roster. So it's going to be tough for Zach Shackelford. Uh, even if he doesn't, though, make it with Tampa Bay, he's still going to have some opportunities down the road, I would think. And, hey, it's cool. At least somebody showed interest in Zach Shackelford enough to bring him in. He did one of those virtual pro day type of things uh, here in Austin because he couldn't do the actual pro day and wasn't invited to the combine. So he had some opportunity to work out a little bit, run through some of the combine-style drills, and he did good enough or well enough to uh, at least get one phone call. So hopefully it works out. That'd be awesome in Tampa Bay. Uh, considering the things that they're building, they've probably had a more exciting offseason than anybody's had in the NFL this year. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's with any UDFA, it's always a long shot. And in a year like this in particular, it's it's going to be tough for Shaq to make the team. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, even it's kind of weird. We forget that not a lot of Texas fans, I think, may have been impressed by his play over this past year or even last year. And I think when one of these two seasons, he was first team all Big 12 offensive lineman so I you know I think Shaq's been a pretty darn good center at a pretty darn tough position in college in a passing league 
Uh, but there obviously was not drafted with good reason. And I, I'm with you. I don't think that I don't think that Shaq is long for the NFL. Uh, I hope he stays healthy enough to give it his best shot because that has been what really has kind of been a limiting factor in his game at Texas with his high ankle sprain going back to when he was a freshman back in 2016 and getting that worked on over and over. Uh, but, you know, he's got the good mental capacity for the game. Four years of center proves that pretty well, playing at a high level. But we'll, we'll see how, how he gets there. I don't think he's got a good a chance of sticking on a roster, especially when you factor in, A, how much money they gave him in the undrafted process, and B, the hometown hero bump that Malcolm Roach hmm. may get from the Saints. Uh, it's signed with New Orleans. That's a team that has several really high-quality pass rushers and defensive linemen, I think some of the best in the NFL, and now he joins that group. I think, I think Malcolm Roach is about to have uh, another situation where people are like, hey, why, where'd this guy come from out of Texas? Why didn't anybody you know, pay attention to this guy? And I think he's going to be able to you know, make a name for himself and find a space on the roster, especially with how much money they gave to him, and really show that when he uh, gave that interview to Clarence Hill in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram about being limited by the Texas three-three-five defense, that he was spot on and didn't really have anything to apologize for. Uh, does have another Longhorn on that roster to learn from with Malcolm Brown, the former New England Patriot, but... Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know where Malcolm Brown projects as at the next level. Like, is he a defensive end? Is he a defensive tackle? Is he a 3-4 outside linebacker? I mean, I, I agree with what he said to Clarence Hill in the Star-Telegram, and we talked about it a lot over the years. He always felt out of position, and they kept moving him around, and just the scheme fit with Todd Orlando never seemed ideal for Malcolm Roach. So I think he can be more productive and should have been more productive during his time here in Austin, but I'm just not quite sure where he fits at the next level. Like, I don't think he's quite big enough to be an interior defensive lineman, and I'm not sure he's fast enough or quick enough to be an edge rusher at the next level. So maybe there's an opportunity for him. There's been plenty of guys who haven't had the ideal body who have found home, uh, found a home in the National Football League, but I think it's going to be tough for, for Malcolm Roach to get there. I was disappointed that he wasn't drafted, but then again, I am happy for him that he kind of got to pick which team he gets to go play for. He gets to go home and compete uh, to to make a roster for a contending team and also, once again, a team that's close to his family. So I like the fit, but it's going to be tough for Malcolm Roach. I just I, I hope you're right. I hope he is like the next Puna Ford to where it's your, you're saying, well, how did this guy not get drafted? And for Puna Ford, it was, well, how did this guy not even get invited to the Combine? Uh, hopefully those are the conversations we're having with Malcolm Roach. I just I don't quite know where he projects at the next level, so I, I think that's going to be a big obstacle for him to overcome. Yeah, this is a guy who I think played four different positions in his career at Texas. I think he played uh, Fox for Charlie Strong, B-backer for his first year, middle linebacker, which was disastrous for his second year, and then uh, started playing or his second year under Herman, and then in his third and final year of this past season gets into that four-eye defensive end spot. I think that uh, he's definitely got the requisite athleticism. I mean, if you're running a 4.8 at over 290, almost 300 pounds, you've got some movement to you. Uh, I think he's lacking a little bit in a lot of the technical aspects of the game, uh, and you know that kind of shows in a lot of him getting swallowed up at times this season when seeking those double teams, admittedly. But I, I think that once 
this is going to be a place where they'll they'll figure it out. I, I really do think so. I think he'll find a spot on probably in the interior since he's at 200 or since he's right at 300 pounds. And here's the thing, it may even be a specialty package. We saw him play nose in, I think, Texas's sub packages uh, this past year. And I think that may be a place for him to, to find a spot in the NFL. So, uh, but I, I do think he's got a little bit higher chance of sticking uh, than Shackelford, but mm-hmm. That's it. There are only five Longhorns, and I'll I'll put you on the spot real quick. Who do you think hears the name called first next year of those in burnt orange? Not if there's going to be a first rounder, but looking ahead real quick with guys like Ellinger, Cosme, Osai, uh, who else? Uh, and you know maybe one of the corners or, or safeties from that 2018 class, uh, maybe even a defensive lineman. Who, who do you think hears their name called first? out of the University of Texas by Roger Goodell next year. Well, Texas better have a first-round pick next year, if not more than one. And I know that hasn't been the case for the last five years, but there's a lot of candidates to be early-round draft picks next year. And if none of these guys hear their names called on day one, then that probably means Texas is coming off another 7-5 and five type of season. And we're going to be having questions about whether or not this head coach is the right head coach to get the job done because there needs to be some more talent development going on within this program. That's no secret. That's been the case really for the last decade. That's been the thing that's lacking the most with UT. Uh, But to answer your question, I think Sam Cosme's the safe pick. I think he's the obvious choice. We see how highly regarded left tackles are. I mean, four of them went in the first 13 picks this year. Teams are always looking to bolster up their offensive line, and Sam Cosme does have some experience playing right tackle too. So that uh, that is the obvious choice coming off a little bit of a disappointing 2019 season. Uh, but if you look at 2021 mock drafts, he's still projected to go in the top half of the first round on just about all of them. So he needs to hear his name in the first round at some point. Caden Stearns is another candidate. If he could stay healthy, we know what that dude is capable of. Freshman All-American, also first-team All-Big 12 his freshman year. Just was never fully healthy this past season, which I think uh, stunted his ability, stunted his growth a little bit as well. But he's got the chance to be a first-round pick if he has a strong junior year. Sam Ellinger's an interesting one. I, I, I don't think he can be a first-round pick, but, hell, you look at Joe Burrow. I mean, going into 2019, nobody thought Joe Burrow was going to be a first-round pick. Everyone probably figured he'd be a day-three guy if he was going to be drafted at all, and he goes from maybe a fifth or sixth rounder to 1-1. One, one. Now, I don't think Sam Ellinger has the arm talent that Joe Burrow does, so I don't think there's a chance Sam Ellinger can be 1-1, one, one, especially considering you got Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and this kid Trey Lance out of North Dakota State. All those guys are better pro prospects than Sam Ellinger, but point is, Sam Ellinger can uh, really increase the stock with a good senior year. And Joseph Osai. Joseph Osai would probably be third on that list. So I'd go Cosme Stearns, Osai as your most likely first rounders for Texas. And then Sam Ellinger, sort of your wild card. If he balls out, if he finds his way to New York as a Heisman finalist, then maybe he has a chance to be a back end of the first round type of guy. But uh, it all depends on what happens this year. Man, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's been my little tag these past couple of weeks. I think the only way Ellinger gets picked in the first round is if he ends up going to New York. And we know what type of season that entails. And heck, there's going to be a lot of other Longhorns in the first round if Ellinger gets picked up there. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not willing to say that Texas is going to have a season where Ellinger is going to end up in New York. I don't feel comfortable saying that on May 1st, but I do feel pretty comfortable 
Uh, and thinking that a guy with a three-year offensive line track record at both positions, but mostly at left tackle, and Sam Cosme will be the guy who probably gets that nod and does go in that first round next year. I think after seeing what happened with Connor Williams, who had a great three-year career at Texas, started almost, I think, all but, what, four games, and, and that was during his junior season, uh, a guy who was a consistent left tackle wall amid all the problems that were going on at Texas Left tackle was not an issue when Connor Williams was there. If Sam Cosme is fully healthy next year and has a, uh, you know, another season where he is a big first team All Big Twelve offensive lineman or first team All Big Twelve caliber offensive lineman, I think it's got to be him because he'll have a better track record than Williams, and Williams was taken in the second round. Um, I think the biggest concern for that is he's just got to prove that you know height is definitely not an issue, but you got to be able to hold that 300 pounds, especially when you're going against guys just as fast, if not faster than you, who are just as big, if not bigger. I think size may be his big issue, but other than that, I mean, Cosby has been great. I think he and Caleb on Chason had a great battle this past year. Chason, you know, whenever the defender wins, it makes a bigger impact, but the offensive guy wins more often. And then after, uh, after Cosby, I think it's, I think it's Osai. Um, if, if left tackles are valued in this league, you know, the guys whose job it is to go after those left tackles are nearly as valued on the opposite side. And then after that, like I mentioned, I don't know if Stearns gets that first round pick. Uh, I, I think it is, there's a big drop off after Cosby and Osai, um, to Ellinger. And then it depends on what type of season he has next year as to how high he gets called in the draft. But there are definitely a few. Uh, from Tom Herman's recruiting, and we're starting to see that come through a little bit more uh, with the you know just that level of player that he's added while at Texas. But you know, like you mentioned, and like we will probably say over and over and over and over until that first game against South Florida comes around, got to prove it on the field this year. Mm-hmm. So we are <laughs> we are waiting waiting for that to get here, but we still got more draft to talk about. And uh, let's see. I got a coin in my hand. I got a poker chip in my hand. And I will flip it, and we will see if we're talking about the Cowboys or the Texans first. And it looks like we are talking about the Dallas Cowboys. So, right off the top, Brad, Cowboys fan, lifelong Cowboys fan, what do you think of the draft? What do you think of the job did Jerry did from his boat? How did you pull that off? The poker chip. You just uh, you didn't even tell us which side meant Texans and which side meant Cowboys. And also, we never got to see you flip. Did you even flip anything, or did you just decide in your yeah, head here? I flipped it. One dollar chip from the end of the mountain gods in New Mexico. There you go. I like it. I like it. I'll take your word for it. Uh, to answer your question, Joe, I loved it. I don't know anybody who didn't love what the Cowboys were able to pull off this past weekend in the NFL draft. I mean, you look at all these post-draft grades from these experts out there, and look, post-draft grades, I talk about them all the time, and I study them all the time, and I pretty much make my own every single year, but really, post-draft grades should be five years after the draft actually happens instead of the day after the draft takes place, because time will tell if your draft was really good, because it all depends on how these guys pan out at the next level. So to get the Captain Obvious stuff out of the way, all of the post-draft grades for the Cowboys, the lowest one I think I saw was a B plus. Uh, I think they absolutely crushed it. I think you got to leave Jerry Jones on the yacht, uh, but I also think you felt the Mike McCarthy impact this year. I really do, because that's the only thing that changed 
from the Dallas Cowboys draft process from last year to this year. I know Jerry Jones said Will McClay, uh, like the head scout for the Dallas Cowboys. I know Jerry Jones said he is the de facto MVP for the Cowboys draft this year, but he's been the president, the VP of player personnel for the last few years with Dallas. The thing that changed is Mike McCarthy was brought in and Jason Garrett exited stage left. So I think McCarthy definitely had an impact, and it seemed like the Cowboys just got value with every single one of their picks. I mean, to get C.D. Lamb at 17, nobody saw that coming. For my money, he's the best receiver in this class. And I know that wasn't the number one need for the Dallas Cowboys going in, but it was a need. They had to find somebody to replace Randall Cobb, who, of course, signed with the Houston Texans in free agency. So at some point in this draft, they needed a receiver. You got a chance to get a number one at pick 17. Why not do it? And they were still able to address their other needs as well. They got two corners, Trayvon Diggs in the second round. A lot of people thought the Cowboys might have to take him at 17 in the first round. He slipped a little bit, fell right into the Cowboys' lap. I like the Gallimore pick as well. A lot of folks thought he was going to go a little bit higher in the third round, maybe even in the second round. Like, just, I won't give every single name, but it felt like every time the Cowboys made a draft selection last weekend, they were getting tremendous value. It was a guy who was projected to go 10 picks, 20 picks, 30 picks, two rounds before they struck gold. They were able to address just about every area of need, and I think they got some guys who can make an impact right away and also some guys who might be a part of the thick of things for the next decade or so up in Big D. Yeah, just looking at the names and thinking of the names that left, they addressed everything. Like you, Cobb for C.D. Lamb, who do you think Bill O'Brien would rather have? Well, we know, unfortunately. C.D. Lamb's a great pick there, and I think you get that cheaper – younger, better player uh, for longer, and you had that unbelievable luck that he ended up there. And then you have to, you had to address corner, take two cornerbacks, like you mentioned with Diggs and uh, Reggie Robinson from Tulsa. Address that. You needed to get help for Demarcus Lawrence on the other side, and you draft Neville Gallimore out of Oklahoma and Bradley and I from Utah. And then, you know, what happened? you got to be careful. You're about to pay Dak a whole lot of money. Why not get another one and pick one up in the seventh round out of James Madison and Ben DiNucci? So I think that, yeah, uh, this was a, a draft for the NFC East that was really important. I mean, you had the Redskins picking very high uh, up in the draft and ended up taking Chase Young. You had the Giants right by him thinking that, you know, m- making a lot of people really confused as to what they might do in the draft. But they went tackle, like you mentioned, with Andrew Thomas. This is a star-studded draft for the NFC East, and I think (laughs) the team with the star on the helmet did the best job for sure. So what does that really mean for this upcoming year? I mean, what do you think with with Dak being there, uh, with, you know, replacing Travis Frederick, and with all these tools on the outside, Mike McCarthy, all this stuff, I feel like this is a great time to be excited to be a Cowboys fan. Yeah, you haven't said that a whole lot in the last two and a half decades, have you? Uh, You know, I think the biggest acquisition that the Cowboys made this offseason is Mike McCarthy. Of course, it's easy to get excited about C.D. Lamb and Trayvon Diggs and some of the other players the Cowboys are bringing in, the ha-ha Clinton Dixes of the world. But Mike McCarthy is going to make the biggest impact on this Dallas Cowboys franchise, and they're going to go as far as he can take them. So that right there, even if the Cowboys had the exact same roster they had last year, a team that went 8-8 and and lost 
one of the most unlosable divisions in the history of the NFL. Just having Mike McCarthy in there gives me more confidence and more optimism as a Dallas Cowboys fan. But yeah, I mean, this offense is going to be hella fun to watch. They still have an above-average offensive line. It's no longer the best offensive line in football, but it is still a very, very good offensive line, and I think they have enough pieces to replace Travis Frederick. And look, Travis Frederick said it himself. He wasn't the same Travis Frederick last year. So you're not going to be able to replace Pro Bowl, All-Pro Travis Frederick, but you've got enough guys, I think, that can do the job, at least similarly to what Frederick brought to the table last year, and not have the center position be a weakness for this football team. And the weapons on the outside with Amari Cooper, with Michael Gallup, with C.D. Lamb, you still have one of the best running backs in football in Deke Elliott. Regardless of the contract and how bad it may be, he's still one of the best (laughs) running backs in the league. And Dak, I'm in on Dak. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you he's a top five quarterback in football, but there he's definitely good enough to get the job done. Top five in most major passing statistical categories last year. Uh, I think he's the right man for the job, and I'm just excited, man. I'm excited about this offense. Still some questions about the defense, of course, because uh, you lost some very important pieces from last year's team, but... I think Mike Nolan, the new defensive coordinator, is going to make an impact as well, and I think the Cowboys have enough to work with to maybe not be one of the best defenses in the NFL, but look at what the Chiefs did last year. I'm not comparing Dak to Patrick Mahomes by any stretch, but if you just have that good of an offense in an average defense or a slightly above average defense, you can get by. I know they say defense wins championships, but scoring points matters a whole hell of a lot in today's NFL. I think the Cowboys offense is going to lead them to success this year and I think their defense has just enough to uh, to make them a contender now am I calling them a Super Bowl favorite or front runner or anything like that no but I think they should be viewed as the favorites in the NFC East and I would say anything less than winning the NFC East next year should be viewed as a disappointment yeah I, I think so too and it should be a should be a really interesting time up in up in Arlington this year and this may be probably one of the best Cowboys teams. I mean, I'm sure this has been said hundreds of times in the past decade, but this may be one of the better Cowboys teams I can remember in the past few few years. So I'm really excited, and it really seems like, again, said this last year, the East should be there for the taking for McCarthy and crew. But now we have to talk about oh, the calamity on Kirby. <laughs> The Houston Texans, uh, who somehow found their way to get a what a four a fifth pick this year. They originally had hold themselves out of the first two rounds of the draft. I can't remember if that was Deshaun Watson related or Laramie Tunsil related, uh, but you know, still no first or second round pick, or no until they traded for they traded DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, yeah, they didn't get a wide receiver, and they said got Randall Cobb and not choosing not to take advantage of a great wide receiver class until the fifth round. I, it's hard for me to be excited about anything, uh, especially Texans related. I think that getting Ross Blacklock was an absolute necessity after losing DJ reader. And with the, you know, what you don't know about JJ Watt, how many more years he has left. They needed help on that interior defensive line. Uh, and I'm glad they got it. And also, they finally addressed, you know, trading that Jadavian Clowney guy uh, by picking a Jonathan Greenard out of Florida in the third round. But other than that, like, when you only have five picks and you were only originally supposed to have four, 
you can't really address a whole lot of needs. And it looks like the Texans are just going to hope that what they have built for this season and even next season under Deshaun Watson will be enough to get them there in the AFC South. But it's really hard for me to believe that that's going to take place with not only general manager Bill O'Brien, but also head coach Bill O'Brien. Yeah, it's hard to move the needle. And like you said, hard to address a lot of needs when you only have five draft picks and one of those is not in the first round. So, you know, Ross Blacklock was a position of need. I'm with you on that. I kind of like that pick. He's a really good player. He's a Missouri City kid, right? Uh, Fort Bend Elkins Uh guy, if I'm not mistaken, who of course played his college ball at TCU up in the Metroplex. I trust Gary Patterson defensive players. I trust that he's been well coached. I think he's going to make a pretty immediate impact for Houston on that defensive line. Uh, Grenard, the edge rusher, you know, had really good numbers for Florida after transferring over from Louisville. Nine and a half sacks, which led the SEC. He's a relentless player. He doesn't give up on plays. The question is, you know, does his athleticism hold up at the NFL level? When I watched him on film, when I watched his highlights, most of his production was against the weaker teams on Florida's schedule. So the bottom feeders like the Vanderbilts of the SEC and also some of the cupcake non-con teams that uh, Florida went up against. So that's a question for me. But, yeah, you know, it's it's how confident are you, Joe, in the Texans competing? I mean, they've won this division four of the last five years. They still have Deshaun Watson, who is the best quarterback in the AFC South. There's still some pieces there. J.J. Watt, Whitney Merciless on the defensive side of the football. I don't know. The AFC South team is pretty wide open to me, and I say that knowing the Titans went to the AFC Championship game last year, but how good is Ryan Tannehill? Can he have that good of a season again, playing all 16 games in 2020? What about the Colts? How much does Phillip Rivers have in the tank? I think we can all probably assume that Jacksonville isn't going to win this division this year, but the AFC South seems pretty wide open. Do you give the Texans a chance to win it this year, or do you think they've lost too much to uh, to really compete for another banner up at NRG? Another banner. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, no, they definitely have a chance to win it this year, and that's what's almost the most infuriating thing. Like, I don't like a lot of what Bill O'Brien has done, like a bad, a poorly negotiated for the team contract with Laramie Tunsil, getting rid of Dwayne Brown, getting rid of Jadavian Clowney, getting rid of DeAndre Hopkins, not getting much in return. Pick, you know, okay, I'll stop. Hmm. Um, but there's still talent on this team because of guys like Deshaun Watson, because of guys like Will Fuller, Watt, uh, even Charles Amena, who's starting to break through, Bernardrick McKinney, Merciless. Like, there's still good enough talent on this football team to contend for the division and win the division. Uh, the Colts really don't scare me because I don't know how much of an upgrade Phillip Rivers really is at this stage in his career. I think he's going to continue to provide them with solid quarterback play like Jacoby Brissett had over the last few seasons. Uh, and he's going to have a great offensive line to help him out, but, so did Jacoby Brissett. I just don't know what you're going to get from Phillip Rivers at this stage in his career. I think you're correct to kind of, at least for this upcoming season, write off the Jaguars and wait till they get some front office stuff figured out. But yeah, it, it's really, I feel like, at least for the South, going to be a Texans-Titans battle. Remember, the Titans didn't really decide on the system that got them to the AFC title game. And maybe when I say system, I mean the quarterback. They didn't switch from Marcus Mariota to Ryan Tannehill until later in the year. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Mike Vrabel had had enough. He decided to see it, and he goes with, like, you know, hey, why don't we use this 250-pound 4'3 guy 
to run literally everywhere. It's become a passing league, except when you have a guy who can just run all over the place. And that's what they've done with Derrick Henry. And that's formidable. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a zag when the rest of the NFL is digging right now. And it was really effective. Like you mentioned, it got into the AFC title game. So as far as the Texans chances, here's the thing. They're still going to be good just because it's, it's an oddly competitive, but still not particularly strong division. And I think that, you know, all the front office decisions that Bill O'Brien has made won't catch up with him enough this year to take them out of contention, which is really, really a endless circle in the cycle. That's not a fun thing to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it feels like every day he's still in power down in Houston. Brings us another day closer to a bad decision he's about to make. I mean, I feel like we were close to seeing one in the draft. Remember when he got up off of his screen and he's just yelling at the screen? And <laughs> That know, was there, awesome. I think there was a there was a report that apparently that was supposed to set up a trade, I think, with the Lions. Yeah. And it fell through. And then you see O'Brien dog cussing somebody over a conference call with his son there, so or somebody in his life there. So that was, uh, you know, we got responsible leadership over on <laughs> over on Kirby in Houston That's taking perfect. care of our uh, hometown team. That's so. exactly what I wanted for Bill O'Brien right there. Like, I wanted that yeah. from this virtual NFL draft, to see one Bill O'Brien blow up, and we got it, baby. And the cameras caught it, and it was absolutely perfect. That's uh, That's what we needed. That's what we needed. I wish we yeah. had more moments like that, more chaotic moments in this virtual draft, but uh, at least we got one of them from Bill O'Brien. Well, uh, you want to switch? Any Anything else you want to cap on about the draft? I kind of got my little Tua segment in there and that I think people are overthinking him and he's going to be a star. Any other? You got a draft hot take? We're about to have to shelve those for a year or so hmm. now. You got something blistering that you want to put out there? Something blistering that I want to put out there. Um, no. I have absolutely nothing blistering to put out there. <laughs> the smart call. Yes. You don't. You don't think the the six banner is going to be raised in the AT and T Stadium? You're not willing to put make that proclamation quite yet. No, I am not. Uh, I am not anywhere close to there. Although this isn't really a proclamation, I think this is kind of obvious at this point. Uh, there's a lot of teams in the NFC who have a shot to contend next year. I mean, I really think you can mm-hmm. make a strong case for like eight or nine teams in the NFC to compete to get to a Super Bowl next year. And in the AFC, I think there's only two. I really think it's Kansas City mm-hmm. and Baltimore. Like, the gap between those two teams is very small. You have to give the edge to KC because they just won the Super Bowl after all and Baltimore didn't even win a playoff game. But, man, I feel like the gap between two and three, I don't even know who number three is. Right? Is it Tennessee? Could it be Houston? Is it Pittsburgh with Ben Roethlisberger back? I, I don't know who the third best team in the AFC is, but I can tell you right now, and I don't even know if this is a hot take, there's only two teams that have a shot to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl next year, and that's Kansas City and Baltimore. In the NFC, you could, I mean, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Arizona's taking steps. I don't know they're quite there yet, but you know, Dallas and Philadelphia, you have to give them a shot. Green Bay, Minnesota still in the mix as well. Uh, New Orleans, Tampa Bay with Tom Brady. I mean, you can just run down a laundry list of teams in the NFC mm-hmm. that have a shot to fight for the Lombardi Trophy next year. And meanwhile, the AFC, 
anything can happen, and there's no series, obviously, in the NFL postseason. So just if you have one bad night, like Baltimore did, you can get eliminated. But, man, I would be shocked, shocked if anybody outside of Kansas City or Baltimore is representing the AFC in the big game next year. All right, one last one, putting you on the spot. And it's a one-word answer. C.D. Lamb wearing number 88, yes or no? Yes. I agree. If Jerry's going to give it out, then let the really good wide receivers wear it. And that's what uh, I think that's what CD does. But are you ready to uh, move on from from college to pro football and go talk a little bit of college hoops during all of this? Let's do it, man. So, speaking of going one and zero, Shaka Smart uh, he went zero and zero against Texas Tech, probably therefore keeping his job. But he went one and zero not only against Kentucky against Michigan and Auburn and Memphis, but he went one and zero against the NBA G League, and still signed Austin Vandegrift forward, five star, you know, top ten future lottery pick Greg Brown. And I think what that shows is a couple things. One, something that we've known for a while is that Shaka Smart is a phenomenal recruiter. He, like every other coach, is going to have misses and. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, Carson Edwards, those are ones that definitely stick out. But when he sought after Jared Allen, he got Jared Allen. When he sought after Mo Bamba, he got Mo Bamba. And now, at this point, when he sought after Greg Brown, and he admitted in a conference call a couple days ago, you know, this was unique because this is the longest amount of time he spent developing a relationship with a prospect you know, he, he's, he ended up getting Greg Brown. So just off the court, what do you think about just the whole impact of Shaka winning this recruitment despite all the noise at Texas and noise about the G League with two prospects of, of Brown's caliber choosing that route over college uh, in a very similar time frame? As far as the off-the-court stuff, what do you make of not only Greg spurning the G League but spurning the G League and choosing Texas? Yeah, you know, I don't know how much credit I should give to Shaka Smart because it's a guy who played his high school basketball 15 minutes away from the University of Texas campus and a guy who's got family ties to the University of Texas. So, like, on paper, you should be getting those dudes. You should be keeping your homegrown guys home. And I don't think it's that difficult to recruit to the University of Texas because it's an awesome campus, it's an awesome city, and you're getting a world-class education So I won't give Shaka Smart that much credit for beating out other colleges in the recruitment of Greg Brown III. The G League thing is an interesting one because, you know, the week before GB3 made his decision, we saw a couple of five-star prospects spurn the NCAA and decide to go with this G League pathway to the NBA program, which has been around for a couple of years, but it seems like the G League and Sharif Abdurrahim, who's the president of the G League, Uh, and Adam Silver as well, they really started to put an emphasis on actually getting this thing up off the ground, and mainly with financials, right? Mainly offering these four- and five-star recruits a lot of money, like enough to actually consider not playing in the NCAA and, you know, going to a place in Southern California where you're not going to be on TV, you're not going to be getting a whole lot of national exposure that you would get if you were playing at a major college basketball program. So, once that came calling, uh, and, and the, the source that I talked to said Greg Brown got an offer of $250,000 to play at the G League level or be a part of that G League pathway program, that made things interesting for me. 
that's a tough beast to fight off, and I feel like it's going to be even tougher for coaches moving forward. But, nah, I, I think Greg Brown has been leaning Texas for a long time, and we talked about it a lot during the regular season, Joe. It's like Greg Brown pretty much said, uh, I'm not coming here if Shaka Smart's not the coach, which he didn't specifically say that, and also he didn't specifically say that if Shaka was still going to be the head coach, then he would be coming here, but that's the way I took it. Like, if he's right. leaking sources or he's got people leaking out that he's not coming here at all, if Shaka's not going to be here, then I took it as, okay, that means if Shaka's here, he's going to come. He's going to be here. So I'll give Shaka credit for that. Uh, he's been recruiting GB3 for a long, long time, and this is a big get. I know he's a one-and-done player, Joe, but this is a, a program-changing type of player. He's an unbelievable talent. Uh, he's a great personality as well. He's a guy who I think can make Texas basketball kind of cool and relevant again. Then you pair him up with the rest of this roster that – seemingly will have everybody back in 2020-2021. There's reason for optimism, and this should be far and away the best year that Chaka Smart has had here in Austin. Yeah, without a doubt. I think one of the things off the court about uh, the G League, and I think you mentioned it, is that Sharif Abdurrahim, I mess that name up all the time. Say it one more time. I think you got it right. Sharif Abdurrahim. Sharif Abdurrahim and Adam Silver they were tired of losing the, these are just the two examples I could think of, the Emmanuel Muadays and the Lamelo Balls of the world. They were tired of them not only spurning the American college game, but of spurning American basketball for a season. Uh, those two, I think, what, Muaday went to China and uh, Ball played in Australia. So the G League program is a way for not only the uh, NBA to get their hands on these players early, but to get them here. And so they don't have to export that to, to Australia. So, but the question there becomes that Greg Brown and that all these players have to ask themselves uh, at this point in time is, are you ready for basketball to be your MS and job, you know, next week? And I think another thing about this G league program that people don't realize is like, you know, it's not like, these guys are about to go suit up for the Rio Grande Valley Vipers or the, or the uh, Austin Spurs. Like this is a kind of a, a, a training camp program uh, to where basketball is your job. And I think you get like 10 to 15 games against G league competition, but you're basically in a training camp. Basketball is your job. And are you willing to do that right out of high school at 18 years old or are you, you know, willing to go to the alternative and maybe go to college for a year where, yes, your basketball demands are going to be much more increased. But, you know, once you're done with basketball, you can go get a, a you know, an order of fries at Jester at Jindy's or something like that. You know, you can relax and take a little time off and go hang out with your teammates and stuff like that. So not that I don't think that Greg Brown's a mature player. I, I have interacted with him a couple times and they've all been fantastic and same with all the other times that in, at inside Texas, but it takes a, it, it's a lot. Basketball is becoming your job. That's a huge step. And, you know, even when ESPN and or was it Marcus Spears, an NBA writer got involved in the announcement that definitely raised some eyebrows too, because what NBA writer is going to, yeah. you know, talk about a kid going to college and that, that definitely, uh, was concerning, but I think not only did Chaka use relationships and you know being able to go to him, Jay Lucas, trying to be at Vandegrift as much as the NCAA would possibly allow, uh, relationships won out, 
And I think that, you know, like you mentioned, those relationships were built in. It's hard to credit Shaka for, you know, hey, you use what you should have used. But I think you definitely have to when you see, A, how important the season is for him next year, and B, who he was going against in that recruitment, mm-hmm. not only college-wise, but professionally. But moving on to the court, and you follow this as the uh, media director of Texas Top 100, if I have that right. What is Greg Brown going to bring on the court? About 6'8", six, 6'9", six, six, 200-ish pounds. You know, I, my, my buddy over at Inside Texas, Justin Wells, says Tracy McGrady a lot, but <laughs> Tracy McGrady is one of the better basketball players of this century. So what do you see in, in Greg Brown and how he should probably be utilized on the floor at Texas? Man, he's just a phenomenal athlete. He's long, but he can absolutely get after it. And his second jump is one of the best I've ever seen at the high school level. I mean, his ability to get off the round, he's got great hops. You know, he's sort of the Instagram dunker of this year's class, kind of like what Zion Williamson was last year, or I guess two years ago when he was in high school before he played at Duke. Like, everybody knew his name because of the dunks that he had that would go viral on social media. That's kind of what Greg Brown is. He's a freak athlete unbelievable ability to dunk the ball his second jump is ridiculous and he can kind of do whatever he wants on the court you know for his size he's got pretty good handles he can knock down the outside shot he's not a lockdown three-point shooter or anything but he can step out and uh and make threes but man you almost want the ball in his hands he can be sort of a point forward for this texas basketball team and i'm interested to see how shaka smart uses him uh because you know, you've got a pretty experienced team and guys who have been in this Shaka Smart system for the last few years, and guys already have their defined and developed roles. So how does Greg Brown sort of fit in? He's going to start for sure. He's going to be a, an impact player for this Texas basketball team, but is he a point forward? Will they take the ball out of Matt Coleman's hands a little bit and let Greg Brown handle the ball? Will he be a back-to-the-basket type of guy? I don't think that's exactly where I would use Greg Brown, but is that something that Shaka Smart is going to do with GB3? Is he going to be sort of a... A stand-in-the-corner type of guy, uh, a three-point shooter for this basketball team. I'm very curious to see how Shaka Smart uses him, but he better use him right, otherwise he's not going to be the head coach beyond this year. No, I, I agree completely. I'm, I'm very curious to see it. And one of the things is, you know, these guys, at least under Shaka, have normally been seven-foot-tall post players. And the thing about Brown is, yeah, he's 6'8", six, 6'9", six, he brings a lot of length, but he's got so much more he's got a different type of athleticism than Bamba, than Allen, than, and even Hayes. So this is a guy who, you know, and the thing that happened when all those guys were on the floor is it seems like the middle of the floor was constantly clogged, and that was a little bit due to, you know, the way Shaka wanted to run his offense. He emphasizes pick and roll, and he's basically married to it, it seems like. So I feel like we're going to see Brown in that type of role, However, I think constantly using him as a pick would be a huge waste of his abilities. And I think we're also going to – but I think on the roll, we'll see him be able to do a little bit more, uh, A, with the ball in his hands, not needing you know, a lob or uh, you know, a perfect entry pass. I think we'll be able to see a little bit more variety from the pick and roll because of Brown, because he has a different type of athleticism that works a little bit more inside-outside than inside-only. Uh, as far as, you know, starting lineups go, Greg Brown and Matt Coleman are definitely going to be two in two of those five spots come 
the first game of next season. What do you think the rest of the lineup that should get most of the minutes looks like? Is Ramey on the floor? Is Andrew Jones still a six-man? Do you go Kai instead of uh, Jericho? Is Greg playing three or four? Where do you think they should go starting lineup-wise with Greg Brown on the floor? Mm, You know... Andrew Jones kind of found himself in that sixth man role. Uh, I, I would like for him to be a starter for this basketball team, but uh, if that's where he's most comfortable, then having that option coming off the bench is pretty good. I, w- I would say Matt Coleman, uh, Jace Fabris, there's a good chance he starts as well. You'd have Greg Brown and Jericho Sims, assuming Jericho Sims will be back, and by all indications he will be. Who would the fifth guy be, though? Man, I, I, I'm curious like how they're going to use Brock Cunningham next year. Did he do enough at the end of this season to maybe earn a starting spot for this team, sort of just being that grit, defense, rebound type of guy? Or what about Royce Ham Jr.? I mean, maybe you could plug one of those guys in as your fifth starter as well to keep Andrew Jones, Gerald Liddell, Donovan Williams coming off the bench. I think uh, one of those guys could be an option to be that fifth starter for this team. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And I think uh, Shaka was asked about this the other day when he was talking with reporters, and he gave a really good answer. It's the honest truth. There's only 200 minutes to spread around in a game, and it's really hard to spread those 200 minutes across 13 scholarship players. So I think what you're going to see is uh, you're going to see some – you'll probably end up seeing some movement before the season starts. Maybe guys – figure out what the role is over the course of the summer and aren't particularly pleased with it. And I think, you know, it's just kind of a fact of life with 13 experienced guys coming back in the day and age of college basketball that we live with that, you know, if there's not, if there's not minutes for 13 people, all 13 people aren't going to stick around. But I think you've got the mainstays in Coleman And I even think Jericho Sims is going to get that designation. I think as a senior, there's no way he doesn't crack the starting lineup. So you've got Coleman, you've got uh, Sims, and you've got Greg Brown. Here's the thing. that You mentioned Jace Fredbris. I don't know if he's a starter on this team with Greg Brown because if you're starting Fredbris, then that means you're probably starting – Rainey or you're starting Andrew Jones and I just feel like I think you're better served maybe having Rainey and Jones on the floor to start and get most of the minutes and not demand so much of Jake Fevers now he's improved I think year over year since he's been here uh he's he's his shooting has not been as good as advertised as it was from Shaka Smart and you know with the role that he plays but I think his athleticism and defense has improved but I don't know if it's improved enough to maybe he's not too much more than a specialized guy who's getting maybe 20 minutes and really on there for his three-point shooting. So I think it's that little that little guard circle of Ramey, Febris, and Andrew Jones. Uh, and, you know, maybe even depending on situations, you can throw Donovan Williams in there. I think those are the three that you're going to have to pick who you want to be on the floor, you know, 30, 35 minutes game. And in my opinion, I don't see how you don't, even though he's a sixth man and, you know, they did the Thunder did this to James Harden where he got a bunch of minutes but still was coming off the bench. You know, maybe you don't mess with that, but I think the minute load has to, you have to really emphasize Andrew over Jace, in my opinion, yeah. on May 1st, you know, a week after uh, he committed. So 
but there's going to be a lot of time to, to really dissect this. But without a doubt, this is, you know, if Shaka Smart was going to stick around and he is sticking around, this was something that needed for, to, to happen for him in order to have any chance at success at a extra year and, you know, honestly placate the Texas basketball fan base. Yeah. And I forgot Courtney Ramey. I totally forgot him. He's got to be a starter as well. <laughs> so that would, that would move Jace Fabris to the bench for sure. And it's, Pretty ironic that Shaka Smart said that, the quote about, oh, we got 13 scholarship players. I don't know how we're going to get them all minutes, considering last year he didn't give guys like Brock Cunningham or Royce Ham, guys who made an impact for this team when they started playing well down the stretch. Those guys couldn't find minutes last year, and they would never have played yeah. until dudes got hurt. So that's a, a little ironic right there from Shaka Smart to say something like that. Now, your job is to not to find – uh, not to find everybody minutes. Your job is to win games. So he's got to find the rotation way earlier than he did this past season. He's got to find his best rotation to help this team compete in the Big 12. I agree completely. And with that, we're about when? Man, we went uh, just over a little hour on this Friday. You've got about 29 minutes till the uh, triple option starts up. Anything else you got? Uh, what are your... What, what, what are we watching this weekend? We got one throwback thing of the week. We got it since we can't give our pick of the week until NASCAR gets back in a couple weeks. What's the throwback watch of the week for this week? Oh, man. I don't know. Do you have something? I'm getting so tired without sports. I'm getting tired of watching old games. I'm losing my damn mind over here, man. Uh, I don't know. Hey. I mean, LHN's been showing some good Texas football games and. Uh, I'm a Dallas sports guy. Fox Sports Southwest has been showing some of the old Dallas title runs, whether it's the Mavs in 2011 or the Stars in 99. That's kind of exciting, but I don't know. Is there anything that sticks out for you? I think there's only one answer at this point, and I think it's got to be uh, the last dance. I think that's mm. getting us through through everything right now with all the re- revelatory information about those Bulls teams and the NBA at the time and I think that's got to be the pick, at least till episode 10 airs, and uh, hopefully we are starting to see some sports safely trickle back, and you know we can start we can start talking about that instead of uh, you know looking backwards, I guess. No so, doubt. anything else you got? Nah, man, good show this week. Thanks to uh, AV Consultations and Altstat Beer for for sponsoring this podcast as always. And uh, I don't know, you want to take us home, Joe? That will do it. Thanks again, like you mentioned, to those sponsors. Thanks to all of y'all for listening. This has been the 1-0 podcast, part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. Make sure you listen to Paul Wadlington and Kevin Dunn on the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast. You can get it in the same stream here. And, uh, yeah, send us an email. Everyone gets a trophy with the number one at gmail.com. At some point, we'll answer some questions from there. And, of course, thank you for listening. Thank you for going 1-0 and today. And, of course, hook them.